Hello, and welcome to the A to Z of the Future podcast. My name is Alexander Thomas. This week, we're beginning a new series on the concept of transhumanism. I have a superb array of guests to investigate this philosophy, including many of the most influential voices in shaping what transhumanism means. I began by asking my guests what they understand by the concept of transhumanism. First up is David Pierce, one of the founding members of the World Transhumanist Association, which later became Humanity Plus, and author of The Hedonistic Imperative. Yes, what is transhumanism? Uh, <laughs> there is no universally accepted definition, but uh, broadly, crudely, transhumanists believe in using technology to overcome our biological limitations and simplistically one can divide transhumanism into the so-called three supers of super super longevity super intelligence and my particular focus super happiness next up is david wood chair of london futurists proud transhumanist and author of the singularity principles the simple answer is that transhumanism is about technology augmenting human capability, that with tools and technology, we can do things which previously were not possible. And what the actual focus of the transhumanist movement is that technology can augment human capability radically in just a few decades, not just with a few extra bells and whistles on top of what we already have, but this technology, if we use it wisely, will give us the choice to transcend age-old limitations such as ageing, such as stupidity, such as depression and alienation. So transhumanists talk about three supers, super longevity tied up with super health, which means that we will no longer suffer the indignity of becoming feeble and old and dying. Then the superintelligence, in which we will have much more access to information, but also be more rational, free from the cognitive biases that often mislead us, things we have inherited from evolution that made good sense for most of our history, but which are no longer the right kinds of thinking modes. Then the super well-being, sometimes expressed as super happiness, which, uh, again, points to us leaving behind some of our characteristic uh, evolutionary tendencies towards uh, selfishness or egotism or to short-termism. And this will give us more access to higher states of consciousness, the kinds of things that people have occasionally glimpsed and experienced. But transhumanists say this is possible much more often, more reliably, if we can use technology wisely. And transhumanists will say not just that these transformations are possible, but they are desirable. It's good that this kind of radical augmentation of humanity can take place. And we sometimes describe it as as significant a jump up in evolutionary terms as the jump from ape to human. The similar transformation in terms of new capabilities is possible within just a few decades. And in contrast to that old evolutionary jump, which took millions of years and which was blind, there was no intelligent design behind it, 
the kinds of augmentation that can take place in the next few decades will be intelligently designed by humans taking the best insights from diverse points of view, integrating them and deciding what to do. Now we can hear from Bob Dode, Professor of Philosophy at Trinity Western University and author of the article Transhumanism, Technology and the Future, Post-Humanity Emerging or Subhumanity Descending. Well, transhumanism, I think the, the heart of it is its desire to take over biological evolution by technological means. The trans and transhumanism I, I see as transforming us technologically, as transitioning us into a successor species, a species that is free of the frailties and vulnerabilities of biology. And then uh, a kind of transcendence that emerges from that, uh, a transcendence from the finitude and frailties of biology into a quasi-omnipotence in, in virtual realities. And, and so, to me, the, the key to understand transhumanism is its participatory evolution, where we are the species that biological evolution has kind of reached the point where it's offspring can begin to take over the functions of chance and necessity, mutation and uh, natural selection. We, we now can take over the remit of the blind watchmaker, in a sense, and begin to engineer ourselves consciously, intentionally, and in very short periods of time into uh, what we want to be. And so the, the heart of it is how technology can bring this about. And what motivates this drive is the recognition of exhilarating technologies, converging technologies that enable us to do so much that we couldn't do in the past. And the idea that we're ready for this. We've recognized that our old approaches are inadequate. What I, what I tend to call the softer technologies of, of discipline and training and education, they get us so far, but they're not enough to get us where we want to be. And so we now have this opportunity to get ourselves there, to be all that we can be and, and transhumanism steps into that, that context with uh, all kinds of optimism. I now have the pleasure of introducing Natasha Vita Moore. Natasha wrote the original Transhumanist Manifesto back in 1983 and has been at the forefront of the modern transhumanist movement since its very inception. I would dare to describe transhumanism as a philosophy that deals with the fundamental nature of reality, knowledge, and existence, like all philosophies, are inclined to do. And I think transhumanism does this quite well. It certainly relies on logic and, and reason as well as vision and continually learning and relearning and uncovering knowledge. As a worldview, it offers a, a cultural ecology for understanding 
human integration with technology. And I think that is a very important area because we have been integrating with technology for eons. So let's face it and talk about it. And as a scientific study, Transhuman provides the techniques for observing how technology is shaping society, as well as practices for investigating ethical outcomes. So its social narrative emerges from humans overcoming odds, basically, overcoming the human condition, the foibles, the discomforts, the tragedies that we've faced for, for years and years. The continued desire of transhumanists to build a world worth living in, and certainly every generation says this, but we have the tools to do such, and we are the architects of our future. The issues here um, require critical thinking and a visionary approach, to be sure, and continually assessing how technology is altering our human nature and what it means to be human in an uncertain world and to become accustomed to uncertainty. It does exist. Change happens. So let's not fight it. Let's work with it. Next, we'll hear from Anders Sandberg, a prominent transhumanist and senior research fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University, which has long been associated with developing an academic rigour to transhumanist discourse. So ever since humans started thinking about the world and their place in it, uh, it became rather obvious that there were many inconveniences and problems, not just the practical ones about starvation and threats of violence, but also mortality and disease and the fact that quite often you're not as smart as you would wish to be. So people started wondering, could there be ways of expanding that? The core idea is that you can question the human condition. The human condition is not given. Yes, many people say that being mortal is what defines us, but then immediately the question is, yeah, but what if we stop being mortal? What kind of being would we be then? Maybe it would be a good idea to do away with some of these things. And these ideas, of course, became more and more relevant as the Enlightenment uh, and the technological revolution and the scientific revolution picked up steam, because many of the bad sides of the human condition that people before believed were absolutely immutable started changing. Hard labor was no longer necessary if you had good machines. You didn't need water carriers to carry water uh, around if you had pipes and pumps. Uh, We found that we could get rid of pain by using analgesia and anesthetics. So why couldn't we fix other aspects of the human condition? And that leads up to the modern transhumanism, which comes from a background in traditional humanism, the idea that humans matter and we should try to improve the human condition And transhumanist says, yeah, and we can go beyond the normal human, make it even better using rational technological means of various kinds. Emil Torres is the author of the upcoming book Human Extinction, a history of the science and ethics of annihilation. Here's how Emil characterizes transhumanism. Transhumanism could be analyzed into two different components. One is a descriptive component that you know, says essentially that emerging technologies will enable us in the future to radically enhance ourselves. So you know, this might mean like brain-computer interfaces, neural chips, or something that enable us to plug our minds into the internet, could involve genetic engineering, you know, modifying our genes in ways to create designer babies that have certain attributes that we find to be uh, desirable, such as you know, higher intelligence. That's a, a very controversial idea. And perhaps even you know, at the extreme, to not just merge technology and biology, organism and artifact, 
but to perhaps completely replace our biological substrate with something wholly artificial. So example of this would be you know, mind uploading, whereby we scan the microstructure of the brain and then replicate its functional organization in silico, you know, on computer hardware. Yeah, so that is the descriptive part. The normative part says that this is something we ought to do. You know, we, there are modes of post-human being that could be far more valuable, far more desirable than our current uh, human mode. And hence, by improving, by you know, upgrading the human condition to this post-human condition, we could perhaps end up living lives that are much better and, again, more valuable than the lives we currently have. So transhumanism, then, is the idea of using technology to radically upgrade human capacities. It involves taking the evolution of our species into our own hands. Importantly, it can be used descriptively to indicate the ongoing dynamic co-evolution of humans and their technologies, or prescriptively and ideologically to advocate for the enhancement of the human condition using these technologies. But just how realistic are the proposals transhumanists make? Are we really just decades away from becoming a whole new species? Here's Bob Dode again. Well, I, you know, I see the ideas as going from kind of mild to wild. And, and the mild end of it is, I think, realistic. We already have chemical technologies that can alter rather crudely, but nonetheless alter our experiences, our memories, our attention capacities. And, you know, we already have implants, prosthetics. Uh, we, we have ways of stimulating the central nervous system with implanted technologies. And, you know, I, I see those rather mild technological interventions that transhumanism talks about as the beginning of this movement as, yeah, believable, realistic, actual. But as it moves in the direction of mind upload, to me, that's the wild side. James Hughes is executive director and co-founder of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies and author of the influential book Citizen Cyborg. He too is keen to point out our co-evolution with technology has been going on for some time. Most of the things that are on the table today, brain chips that might allow a little bit more, a little bit more memory, a little bit more cognition and some enhanced abilities, genetic modifications, biomedical interventions. These are not real game changers in that regard. They're very much in line with the continuity of things we've been doing for hundreds of years. Once we mastered fire, maybe a million, two million years ago, um, our neocortexes started to grow more rapidly and allowing us to develop more tool use and more intelligence and eventually language and so forth. So we've been um, co-evolving with our technological innovations for a very, very long time. And the, the term cyborg is often used in this context that we were kind of became cyborg humans or humans uh, 1.2 a long time ago. Callum Chase, author of Surviving AI and the Economic Singularity, sees transhumanism as a justifiable continuation of this long-term process. But for him, the implications of our techno-human relations promise a mind-bogglingly different future. Transhumanism, as I understand it, is the belief that we should be allowed to, we should have the right to enhance our cognitive and physical capabilities. 
with, with technology. This shouldn't really be terribly controversial. After all, many of us use glasses. Um, we use smartphones to extend our capabilities. We increasingly augment ourselves more and more intimately with cochlear implants and uh, lens replacements in our eyes and so on. And if you extend that further into the future, you know, we will amend our DNA and we will inject chips into our bodies. And these processes should enable us to cure all of our diseases. It's entirely plausible, I think, that we will end death. And that's one of the great goals of transhumanism. So if the transhumanist project is successful, and I'm confident it will be in the long run, then we will at some point cross a threshold and become post-human, as in no longer unaugmented humans. Transhumanism is a, an ideology, if you like. It's a way of thinking. And post-human is the state of being more advanced or just different from, from humans. Ending death, becoming a new species, how is this even thinkable in the foreseeable future? Well, there are a number of technologies that are improving at a rapid rate, and they are converging to offer potentially radical possibilities. Here's David Wood and Anders Sandberg to tell us more. And how will this be possible? It's a whole bunch of technologies which are accelerating NBIC. They're sometimes called nanotech transformations in our power to manipulate matter at the molecular level systematically. Biotech transformations in our power to manipulate our own biology, whether it's at the genome or proteome or the biome. Infotech transformations in how we process information, how we infer logic out of the data that we can collect. And Cognotech is to improve our thinking power, our brains. The simplest form of biotechnology is, of course, what we do in medicine with surgery. But we're getting better and better at modifying cells, uh, either by sending the right chemical signals to them or doing genetic modification. It used to be that this was very limited. Thanks to CRISPR-Cas9 and other modern technologies, it's become much easier to actually reprogram cells to do fantastic things. So here we have a world where we're getting programmable biology. Biology is really messy and really hard to work on. But when you start thinking about how we can apply that to ourselves, it's both obvious that we want to use it for medicine, but you could also think of it as various forms of enhancement. After all, I might want to make sure that aging slows down. So I might want to block genes that increase aging. I might want to have a, a genes triggered by cancer cells so they become very visible and we can do something about that. And similarly, we're getting methods of generating tissues artificially using scaffolds and growing cells on them, using stem cells to regenerate uh, the tissue. And that might allow us to both do medicine, but also modify our bodies. That is the B in NBIC. Then there is, uh, of course, information uh, technology. And that is, of course, very well known. We're using it right at this very moment, uh, surrounded by a world of computers, networks, but also artificial intelligence that is getting increasingly powerful, which is a way for us to outsource mental functions. We have a super memory in the form of Wikipedia. We can access it almost anywhere using a smartphone. And we are getting AI assistants that are more or less helpful for doing many of the simpler mental tasks. This information technology not only might help us act better, but it also empowers the biotechnology. 
genomics is a key part of how you design new biology today because you literally compile it on a computer. You design what DNA sequence or what RNA sequence to put into your vaccine on a computer, synthesize it, and put it into biology. And then we have nanotechnology. So my friend and colleague Eric Drexler coined the term in the 1980s. He had observed in his own work on space that it would be good to have effective manufacturing methods that could make very small things in space. He was thinking about solar sails, very thin sails of aluminium foil to move things around in the solar system without using rocket propellant. But they are so fragile that you needed to manufacture them in space. So his idea was, what are the limits of manufacturing? And he realized that putting together stuff atom by atom seemed to be physically possible. And once you do the math and realize how powerful that technology is, it opens up a fantastic world because most of the technology we'd use today is based on taking a big, messy bunch of material, heating it up, cooling it down, adding something else to it, roughly shaping it. We don't have control on the atomic scale, which means that many of our materials are much weaker than they could be. Many of them require much more resources and produce much more pollution when we produce it. If we could do this exactly, it's not just that we could do it as effectively as biology manufactures material, but we could do it much faster, produce material biology could never do, like solid diamond. So he got people interested in this in the 80s, and it grew into a massive field. Unfortunately, it got taken over more by nanoscience than nanoengineering. So a lot of people are now poking around doing fantastic things of a nanoscale, but not thinking about how to actually manufacture things effectively, which is actually what we should be aiming for. We don't necessarily need to know everything there is to know about the nanoscale for that. If you have good nanotechnology, now biotechnology and information technology gets more powerful. After all, our microchips are already nanotechnology. We already have features there made on a nanoscale, although they're not assembled atom by atom with precision, but rather through a complicated etching method. But that demonstrates the enormous power of nanotechnology. The reason our computers are so awesome that they are today, that we all carry what once were a supercomputer in a pocket, is nanotechnology. We have empowered Moore's law tremendously by making things small. And the same thing could be done for many of other functions. So finally, the C here, that's cognotechnology. Can we do something with the brain? Can we improve our cognition? And this is probably the least developed method of them. Uh, but this is, of course, the ultimate thing. We might want to learn how to control our emotions. We might want to learn how to learn better. We might want to integrate our brains with computers so we can think thoughts that are not possible without computer support. I can only maintain uh, seven things in working memory, even on a good day when I drank a lot of coffee. Um, and maybe I can take a smart drug to improve my cognition that helps me remember one more item but it's still limited. My computer has no problem remembering 50 things at the same time, but it's not very smart. If I could borrow the working memory of my computer so I could use that to think very complex thought, I think we would be able to do fantastic new things. So to summarize, Envic is all about the convergence of different technologies that each on their own are useful, but together implicate a profound change of human condition that we could actually both control the material world around us, but our own biology and our own thinking. In some sense, it's all becoming a cultural artifact. This is exhilarating, and many transhumers are very enthusiastic about it. While some critics and people who don't like this, they're horrified. This is really what we don't want to see. 
And that leads, of course, to a very fun and intense ethical debate. Even if we acknowledge that this suite of technologies is starting to promise radical possibilities, there's something else we need to understand to really think like a transhumanist. And that relates to the pace of the development of these technologies. Here's Callum Chase to explain another vital aspect of this techno-human co-evolution, the notion of exponential growth. One of the stories that we really need to get our heads around is the power of exponential growth. And the exponential growth that we're facing in compute power is going to transform our world. I think in many ways it's going to make it much better. We need to understand it. We need to accept that this is happening. And we, we need to take into account in our thinking about what the future is going to be like, particularly when we're thinking more than two, three, four years into the future. An exa example I often use for the power of exponential growth is if you walk 30 steps, you will travel about 30, 30 meters. Uh, if you could walk 30 exponential steps, then your first step would be one meter, your second would be two, your third would be four, your fourth would be eight, and so on. It's rather surprising to find out that your first step would take you to the moon. And in fact, it's also not true because your 29th step would take you to the moon. Your 30th step would bring you all the way back. So it takes 29 steps to get there, one step to get back. And that's a very graphic illustration of the fact that every step in an exponential process is equal to the sum of all the previous steps. So exponential growth is very, very powerful. It gets you a long way very fast, but it's backloaded. And every step you take, the past looks trivial. The future is, is very impressive. Another great analogy is, is a stadium, a football stadium, which has been made waterproof. And the referee walks out into the center of the pitch and drops one drop of water onto the pitch. And then a minute later, she drops two drops of water onto the pitch. And then a minute after that, she drops four drops of water. The question for the audience is, how long would it take for the stadium to fill up? And the answer is 49 minutes. But what's really impressive is that after 42 minutes, the floor, the, 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 the pitch is just damp. You can't really see the water. But people are beginning to see, oh, something going on. And they're starting to think, leave. And of course, seven minutes later, they've all drowned. So it's very fast and it's backloaded. And we're on this process with regard to the improvement in the performance of our computers. And that is what drives the improvements of performance of AI. That's known as Moore's law. And people get a bit hung up about the specifics of Moore's law. Moore's law has always evolved. When Gordon Moore in, invented it, noticed it back in 1965, he had a specific process in mind how machines were getting uh, faster and faster. It has changed since then. And there are other processes adding into it. There's now, according to some people, there's a, there's a Moore's law in software. Software is also improving at an exponential rate. There's various other things which are doing the same thing. Some of them, in, in a sense, in reverse, in, in that the cost is going down. We don't know how long it will continue. It's pretty much undeniable that nothing can go exponentially forever because it would swallow the universe. But so we have a series of S-curves. The, the performance of computers could certainly continue to improve exponentially for quite a long time before we run out of space. And it will almost certainly continue for another 10 years and quite probably for a lot longer. And that is what will get us to the economic singularity and then to the technological singularity. So the converging NBIC suite of technologies, boosted by the power of exponential growth in some technological domains, does seem to at least plausibly raise the possibility of humans radically altering what we have long understood as human nature, potentially in the very near future. But to what extent do transhumanists share a vision of what this change will look like? 
Here's Callum Chase, followed by Dr. Beth Singler, Assistant Professor in Digital Religion at the University of Zurich. Transhumanists are like ordinary people. We are ordinary people, and we come from all sorts of different ideological and aesthetic backgrounds. There's a lot of variety in the transhumanist culture and community, and a lot of time the emphasis is more on the, the musks and the bostroms and the more kind of exponential view of post-singularity existence and what that looks like as we become post-human. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot in the community that's sometimes described as more grassroots that focuses more on biohacking and or being the grinder community as well. So it's, it's important to note there is, a, there is a vast array of transhumanisms. So transhumanists embrace diversity. It's one of the core principles that people should not be dictated to in terms of their choices. We talk about the importance of morphological freedom, which is if people want to modify their bodies in various ways, the presumption should be that it's good for them to be able to do so. And likewise, there is support for varieties of different thinking styles. So some variation is entirely to be expected and to be desired. But as you've said, there are differences of opinion too, differences of priorities, and I can mention some of them. For example, some transhumanists focus on humanity being enhanced, whereas others say, hang on, what about the rest of the animal kingdom? So David Pierce is a leader of a very significant subgroup within transhumanism. He is one of the founders of transhumanism in the sense that he was behind the transhumanist declaration and also the founding of the World Transhumanist Association, later renamed as Humanity Plus. So he emphasizes the possibility of engineering paradise, not just for humans, but for all sentient life, that there will no longer be unnecessary pain and suffering anywhere in the animal kingdom. And other transhumanists say, yeah, that's a point, but it's not their priority. And they focus on the short term, at least much more on human flourishing. A second division is on how seriously transhumanists take the threat of existential disaster. And everybody in principle will say, yes, it's true, technology could do bad things as well as all the good things that we speak about. But some people take it more seriously than others. If I look again to the transhumanist declaration, I think it's got the balance right. I think there are about seven clauses in that declaration, of which four talk in various ways about the importance to think through carefully the risks of technology rather than just going on and later being shocked and horrified by what's actually happened. So some transhumanists put much more focus on analysing and preventing existential risks. Others say we can take these risks because, frankly, we need to hurry up and get these better technologies done soon. I put myself on the camp of taking the existential risks very seriously. A third division is between those transhumanists who are looking ahead eagerly to leaving behind biology altogether, to having their brains digitized, their consciousness somehow copied out of biology and into the cloud. Whereas many other transhumanists, and again I'll put myself in this category, look forward in the foreseeable future to having our biologies enhanced, that the ageing which takes place inside our physical bodies can be reversed and we can stay in our bodies and in our brains for the foreseeable short-term future, and that we can have better bodies, we may have new organs grafted into our bodies, 
but we will still be in our brains for the time being. So that's the distinction between the biological focus and uploading. Some people would like to see us remain physical, corporal beings, whereas other people think, well, what the hell, let's just all upload into a computer and live in virtual reality. And I'm probably more in that camp. I think that the possible life experiences that you could enjoy in virtual reality are just going to be infinitely more varied and interesting. But I don't see why those two need to be in opposition. You know, I, I don't want to stop David being a biological creature, and I would hope he wouldn't want to stop me and other people being uploaded creatures. Another point of contention is how seriously we should consider alliances with religious people. In some ways, there is similarity of purpose between the vision of transhumanists and the vision of at least some religious people in terms of building a paradise or partaking in paradise. And there are various transhumanist groups who identify as religious. There is the Mormon transhumanists, there is the Christian Transhumanist Association, there are many transhumanists who identify with some sympathy as Buddhists, but others say, hang on, religion has got too much baggage with it, religion is our enemy rather than a potential friend, and these more radical atheist transhumanists fight against having too much cooperation with religion. My own view there is I think it is possible to have very productive relationships with people who still identify as religious and we need to find the ways to have these relationships. There's contention in transhumanism also about what we should think about markets and business on the one hand and what we should think about politics and regulations on the other hand. There are some transhumanists who like markets and corporations and say, yes, entrepreneurial drive is how we're going to get to this better world. Others are much more fearful of it and say, no, we shouldn't be contaminated by this uh, free market ideology. It's damaging. There are transhumanists who think that there should be no rules and governments are a bad thing. The radical libertarian wing and Peter Thiel is the flag bearer for that. And then there's lots of transhumanists who come from a Marxist tradition who think in a much more collectivist way. They're sometimes given names the techno-libertarian group inside of transhumanists who don't want politics to get in the way and they want entrepreneurs and businesses to be given as much freedom as possible. On the other hand, the techno-progressive wing of transhumanists say we need to steer the market and we do need some regulations, otherwise the technologies will have bad outcomes. A final distinction I might come to is between those who think transhumanism deserves to be a movement and possibly that the most important aspect of transhumanism is the ism, that we want people to say, hey, I am a transhumanist and you should be too. Much like the first person who used that term in its modern sense, Julian Huxley. He gave a lecture in 1950, written up in 1951, in which he said, he looks forward to more and more people saying, I believe in transhumanism. It's not just that we think it's good if technology can do these things to human nature, it's actually desirable for more people to say, yes, let's get behind this big vision. Others say, however, we shouldn't have an ism. We shouldn't even use the word transhumanism. It's a word with many negative connotations. Let's just get on and build this world. So sometimes these people are called de facto transhumanists, and I have a lot of respect for them. They don't want to be associated publicly with a movement that has some baggage behind it. But I, I do put myself in the group of people who say it's important that uh, we speak up for transhumanism as a coherent set of thoughts, as a vision that can help people to move beyond the despair of much of what's happening in the world today, to help people to see a higher purpose 
and to motivate people to start working together for that accomplishment. Before we finish today, I'd like to introduce three concepts that are central to the concern of transhumanism as an ideology. The first is the proactionary principle. Here's Anders Sandberg and Natasha Vita Moore to tell us what it is, where it came from, and why it is important. The precautionary principle is very popular, and it's the idea that uh, if you propose to do something new, it might be dangerous. So we should be always very careful about new things. And in its normal form, it says you need to investigate if it could be dangerous. The problem is many people take it as saying, oh, if you propose something new, you're not allowed to start until you've done an enormous study that it's absolutely safe. The proactionary principle turns that around. The proactionary principle was written by Max Moore. And the reason why it is so important and integral to transhumanism is because it puts the burden of proof on all parties, both sides of the issue. Whereas the precautionary principle, which is often used in legislation, determining what advances to make or invest in for governments and peoples and industry, puts the burden of proof only on the new technology. So the proactionary principle suggests that we look at all sides of the issues, the pros and the cons, the benefits, the, the complications, and then determine what technologies to use. And that concerns artificial intelligence and nanotechnology, genetic engineering. The proactionary principle is more about we should recognize that there are benefits to many of the new things. Always focusing on the risks and ignoring whatever the benefit is means that you're actually risking quite a bit. And this goes well together with this general recognition that current Western culture now is very risk averse. It's very hard to start a project or build something, which means that we're sitting with an aging infrastructure that is breaking down in various ways, but it's very hard to repair it or replace it with something better. You actually need experimentation. Many of these things will not turn out well, but that's fine. If you do a small scale trial and it fails, well, try something else. If it works well, scale it up. The next concept is morphological freedom. Again, here's Anders and Natasha to explain the idea and its centrality to the transhumanist vision. The idea with morphological freedom is that we have a right to determine how we change our bodies uh, or not change them. And this follows rather naturally from traditional ideas about human rights and freedoms. We have a right to our own life. Uh, nobody is allowed to kill us. We have a right to freedom of action as long as we don't do something breaking the rights of other people. But that seems to be that if I have a right to my own body, which I must have because I have a right to my life, and indeed many people say it's very important to have a right to your body, especially when it comes to women's bodies, then if I can determine the disposition of my body, shouldn't I be allowed to change it? Or if somebody wants me to change my body, to tell them, no, nope, you're not allowed. That is really the core of morphological freedom. We have a right to modify our bodies and their function. Morphological freedom is very important because if we allow governments or legislation or different groups of people to tell us what we can and cannot do with our body, we're in big trouble. We're already seeing this in, in many areas of, of the world in different governments who control people's bodies, women's bodies largely. What we want is to have the right to determine what to do with our body. Body, as long as it doesn't harm another person or the environment. So it's your body, your choice. But there is some restriction there because if you're doing something to your body that is going to put some chemicals or pollutants out into the environment that's going to damage other people, well, that's, that's not right. 
or to hurt another person? Well, of course, no. No, that would be illegal and, and unethical. So morphological freedom protects the rights of, of people to enhance, to augment. Now, there is a big debate here about whether this is a positive or negative right. So a negative right means that, yeah, nobody can force me, but they're not obliged to help me. If I want to have wings, yeah, that's up to me to figure out a way of getting wings and pay for them. While a positive right might be that maybe this is what the healthcare system should actually provide me with. So when I wrote my essay about this, I was taking what I felt was the simple conservative view of taking the negative right perspective. The reason for that was I felt, yeah, getting other people to want to support my weird ideas is going to be hard. But we can all agree that we should at least be allowed to pursue our own individual projects, which is very much a classical liberal view. There are many people on the political left who think, no, positive rights are important. Many rights don't make sense unless you have a society that actively supports it. But of course, it's going to be a pretty big political battle before you get the natural health system to support genetic upgrades or getting wings or other things. So that turns into a lot of politics. But deep down, I just think we should recognize that our right to our bodies also means that we have a right to change them. The third concept is existential risk. There's less agreement among our guests over the relevance of this concept to transhumanism. However, all would agree, as an area of study, it is growing significantly in prominence. Here's Anders, Emil and Natasha with their views on what it means and what we should make of it. So the idea that humanity might go extinct has been around for a long time. Obviously, most religions have some kind of end of the world story. But that's usually just a good framing story for the, uh, the mythical arc of the universe. When science developed, we realized this actually could happen for real. We found other species that went extinct. We found astronomical phenomena that uh, might wipe out Earth. And people realized that the heat death of the universe will eventually do us in no matter what. But that remained an issue for scientists and maybe science fiction authors up until 1945 when the atomic bomb made it clear that, oh, we can wipe ourselves out quite well. So there was this understanding that we might be in a precarious position. But what happened in the late 20th century was that a field of existential risk studies emerged. That field also emerged partially inside transhumanism. And that might sound strange because aren't transhumanists all techno-optimists who think the future is so bright that we need to wear sunshades? And the answer is, if you think the future could be radically different, not just better with a bit of flying cars and uh, non-polluting industries, but actually radically greater minds, uh, being able to do things that were impossible before, then it might also be possible to make it much worse. Many of the technologies transhumanism uh, thinks are possible and uh, desirable also have dark sides. Biotechnology can be used to make bioweapons. Nanotechnology could both be used to hack uh, our brains and uh, destroy the surrounding world really effectively. Uh, artificial intelligence with, that has the wrong values could be very smart, very powerful, very tenacious and transform the world in a direction that we couldn't control and would not approve of. Uh, cognitive technologies could warp our minds in very bad ways. So if you're accepting a radically better future, you should be wary that it could be radically worse too. So you need to work on preventing those dark futures. And that's why quite a lot of transhumanists like Nick Bostrom started working on existential risk. I remember reading his classic paper and I really hated it. I really felt that, oh no, this is something the Luddites and the people who are against advanced technology are going to seize on to say, we need to stop technological progress. 
But gradually I realized, actually, if I'm in favor of technological progress, I better make sure it's safe, that at least we have a way of handling some of the downsides. Actually, if you look at the history of the idea of existential risk, it was initially defined specifically in transhumanist terms. So it was any event that would prevent us from realizing the transhumanist project of exploring various post-human modes of being. And the entire reason this idea was coined in the first place is because transhumanists in the 1990s realized that the vehicle from our current human position to this techno-utopian transhumanist future is various emerging technologies. They were called in the 90s and early 2000s GNR technologies, or that stands for genetics, nanotech, and robotics, which would include AI. And so these are the technologies we have to develop if we want to realize the transhumanist dream. The problem that people realized very quickly is that these technologies also seem to carry with them or to introduce various risks to human existence even that are perhaps far more significant, far greater than any of the risks that the previous 20th century technologies posed. So this would be nuclear, biological, chemical weapons. Those were the main weapons of the 20th century. In the 21st century, though, you'll have these GNR technologies and consequently these GNR risks, which are unprecedented. And so the idea of existential risk was basically a response to this situation. Some people at the turn of the 20th century said, GNR technologies are so incredibly dangerous that what we should do is impose broad moratoriums on entire fields of emerging science. Just don't develop them. They're too dangerous to develop. The transhumanists on the other side said, no, that's not an option. Because if we don't develop them, the transhumanist project will never be realized. So we have to develop them. What we should do instead is found an entirely new field of interdisciplinary scholarly inquiry focused around existential risk that studies the, the various dangers of GNR technologies and then tries to figure out ways to effectively neutralize them. That way we sort of have our technological cake and also can eat it too. So, so one criticism of transhumanism has to do with the, the first claim that there's no way forward except the further development of these technologies. Even though these technologies could potentially threaten the existence of every single human on the planet because they are unprecedentedly dangerous. And so there's something maybe dangerous about the, the, this whole transhumanist view uh, at its very core that you know, it's, it says, okay, yes, the, the, the risks are tremendous, but they're worth taking. And we, you know, we shouldn't try to put the brakes on the enterprise of technological development, the enterprise of technologization. And so initially when I encountered transhumanism, this was my big worry, that they're advocating for the development of these GNR technologies and that one could say that that's, there's something reckless about that, <laughs> you know, because they're putting everybody on the entire planet in danger. Concern about existential risks getting a lot of headlines, but actually, I, I'm not quite sure I follow it within transhumanism because existential risk is used to appease doomsday naysayers. And when you're appeasing doomsday naysayers, you've already given in because we're just feeding into their fury. Whereas I prefer to use my own phrase about risk, which I call evolvability risk. 
which I think is far more serious to humanity's future, because if we cannot evolve, then well, our species could feasibly die off. Having the human story end with a sudden mishap, somebody pressing a button and going, whoops, and that's it, would be a terrifyingly bad outcome. We want to actually handle the existential risks. So the existential risk studies world is consisting both of the big philosophical questions, what are the risks, and, and the more practical questions, like how do you rank them? It turns out that probabilities are often very hard to deal with uh, for some risk. We can say something about asteroid impacts because we have a past historical record and we can find that mm, the risk is actually not terrifyingly big, but it's a good thing that there are some people working at uh, ways of intercepting asteroids. And then you have really annoying ones. Future technologies, we might not even know what they are like, like artificial intelligence. There are many people saying that worrying about AI risk is crazy because current artificial intelligence is dumb. It's not a threat. So you're worrying about fictional future technology. And the response is, yeah, it's a good idea to figure out how to keep that safe before it comes about. Because once you have a powerful technology, then it might be rather too late to make it safe. So... This field deals with very interdisciplinary questions, both about philosophy and risk, but also technology and policymaking. How do you come up with a good policy in, uh, to lead humanity in a slightly safer direction? What are the risks we can take? What are the risks we must not take? And how do you set up institutions that make sane decisions in a crisis situation? So that's something we're working on. I'll give the final word today to Natasha Vitamore who for 40 years has been at the forefront of transhumanist thought, having written the original Transhumanist Manifesto in 1983. Natasha explains why transhumanism is such an important philosophy for the future. The fact that transhumanism has, since its inception, considered all these elements of the future, not only longevity, space exploration, uh, clean energy, the environment, human potential, overcoming you know psychological and physical ailments, addressing how to better educate people. All these different elements are part of transhumanism. So I would say that because the worldview looks at these elements and also considers the long term, the future, it is probably the most apt worldview for us to be paying attention to. And that's it for the first episode of our series on transhumanism. I'd like to thank my guests today, David Pierce, David Wood, Bob Dode, Natasha Vita-Moore, Anders Sandberg, Emil Torres, Callum Chase, James Hughes and Beth Singler. We'll be back soon with our next episode where we will discuss in much more detail the three supers, super longevity, super intelligence and super happiness. Don't forget, if you haven't already done so, you can listen to our three-part series on the Anthropocene. It's available now. Thanks also to Matt Black and Darren Sangita for the music in the podcast. Check out their digital album, New Directions in Psychedelic Abstraction. Much gratitude also goes to Paddy Jervis and Rob Sell from Torch and Compass for their tireless work on the podcast. Matt Tams for his exquisite A to Z artwork and Paul McCrudden, the other half of Into the Future. See you next time. <laughs>